नमस्ते लेटस इनवोक द डिवाइन मदर थ्रू गायत्री मंत्र second chapter of vaicharity vaicharity is an initiative by rashtram school of public leadership for thoughts discussions and dialogues this is a part of the 150th birth anniversary year of sri aurobindo in this second chapter the topic is varna and jati an integral perspective i abhishek panda welcome adarsh pandit researcher and career advancement manager at rashtram school of public leadership to take this forward welcome adarsh thanks thanks uh, abhishek and uh, welcome everyone uh, so when i when i got this information that i'll have to you know introduce Uh, give the introduction on this topic i my mind directly went to an anecdote which uh, happened few years back one of my friend who was appearing for an upsc interview he told me that when the interviewer asked him about his caste he said that my parents associate themselves with uh, as a brahmin but he has he never associates himself with any so called caste so varna and jati in itself is a contentious issue especially in the way it is it has been served to my generation the nuances are lost and we have got to a, we have got a conclusion without even examining the details and nuances of this uh, whole aspect and so without wasting any further time i think uh, we have best men amongst us who can actually get throw light on uh, the this topic this rather contentious and yet we need to know a very important important topic for us so i like to first uh, welcome sampadanand ji sampadanand ji as we all know is a very passionate uh, scholar of sanskrit um, so as others were saying uh, i welcome dr sampadanand mishra uh, professor at rashtram school of public leadership to open this floor for the second episode of vaicharity welcome sir namaskar to all of you 
and uh, again a grand welcome to all our speakers uh, kundan uh, ashish and uh, nilesh and uh, the moderators manan and others and thank you abhishek for initiating uh, this is the second chapter and then we started vicharity last month with the uh, subject on education and this time the topic uh, we have selected is varna and jati um, and as we all know uh, how sensitive is this topic and then what is going on uh, connected to uh, the varna and the jati and here as a part of this 150 years celebration of sri aurobindo and 75 years of india's independence so we have started a series of activities of which uh, vaicharika is one monthly webinar where we take up one topic one concept one idea and uh, then we have a keynote speaker to bring the conceptual clarity on this and then we will have the panelists to contextualize it and discuss it um, uh, in the light of sri aurobindo and taking the contemporary issues and then linking it with the contemporary issues so the panelists will be discussing and there will be question and answer sessions where we invite all the viewers and all the participants to participate actively and then put their questions and the topic today varna and jati especially when we uh, it's it's an age old uh, problem we can say it's not that uh, just during this time this phase of time there are issues but there are issues since when the decline started and the distortion started so in the course of evolution the original idea of varna and the jati got distorted to a great extent and then uh, there are a lot of other forces which have crept into to uh, make the distortion more acute when we look at sri aurobindo whose yoga is called the purna yoga the integral yoga the yoga of transformation so purnata prapti attainment to the fulfillment to the perfection is the aim and in that sri aurobindo says and sri aurobindo's yoga is central to the divine mother where uh, it is uh, everything is organized around this central idea of the divine mother and the human consciousness sri aurobindo says has this four major powers the power of wisdom the power of heroic strength the power of love and harmony and the power of endeavor and perfection represented by and we can also see uh, the ancient indian seers and sages how they have they had envisioned this and these are the four major powers of major manifestations of the divine mother so the wisdom represented by the maheshwari and this is the brahma shakti the heroic strength represented by mahakali the kshatra shakti and love and harmony represented by mahalakshmi 
the vaishya shakti and endeavor and perfection represented by mahasaraswati the shudra shakti and all these shaktis all these four powers have to manifest well harmoniously within the human consciousness in order to achieve that perfection which is the aim of the yoga aim of education aim of life so based on this vision of sri aurobindo today's discussion will be uh, carried forward and i welcome kundan uh, who will be giving the keynote address elaborating this whole seed idea presented by sri aurobindo and i welcome ashish and nilesh to contextualize this taking the contemporary issues and then linking it to the vision of sri aurobindo and the mother and i welcome all the participants and viewers and request them to participate actively and ask your questions and share your thoughts and with these few words once again invoking the presence of sri aurobindo and the mother i request um, others to take it forward dhanyawad i'll just introduce dr kundan singh ji so dr kundan singh holds a doctorate in humanities with a concentration in east west psychology from california institute of integral studies san francisco earlier he obtained an ma in applied psychology uh, with a concentration in social psychology from the university of delhi after having served as a core faculty at sofia university for close to a decade where he taught at the doctoral level kundan singh ji joins the hindu university of america as a core doctoral faculty he has been a scholar plus a practitioner which is quite important in uh, our darshana and he has been uh, uh, a scholar and uh, a practitioner of integral yoga and uh, the darshan of mother and sri aurobindo he has taught in areas of integral philosophy psychology and and covering almost all the aspect of psychology post modern vedant everything he has been a he is a senior fellow uh, with hindupedia where he is diligently involved with changing the representation of hinduism and india in the grade school textbooks in california and across the us i guess this can also happen in india uh, he is also co-authored uh, books uh, one of his book uh, he has co-authored with krishna maheshwari titled uh, titled making children hinduphobic a critical review of magro hills world history textbooks he has written another book titled the evolution of integral yoga sri aurobindo sri ramakrishna and swami vekananda uh, after uh, he has also published uh, several papers and books and uh, book chapters on psychology science relativism indian psychology and postmodernism he is also the vice president of cultural integration fellowship and institution in san francisco inspired by the teachings of sri aurobindo and the mother so i'll stop here again i can go on and on with his introduction because there is so much uh, that is uh, needed to uh, needed but i'll stop here and i'll hand the platform over to uh, kundan singh ji uh, namaskar sir please take it forward thank you adarsh and thank you sampad for inviting me am i audible are you able to hear me yes sir yes sir you are audible could i could i see some faces on the screen it would be good to have some faces on the screen it would be easier for me to talk otherwise it feels as if i'm staring into a screen good to see you raghav good to see you sir spoken like a professor 
<laughs> Thanks. I've been doing this for a while now, Raghav. Um, it's it's my pleasure to be here and be speaking on a topic which is extremely important from the Indian perspective. And as uh, Adarsh pointed out right at the very beginning of this talk, that this issue is indeed contentious. And on most occasions, what happens is that it brings about tremendous amount of emotive issues. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very charged topic and so charged that most people are not able to inquire into it. And what is important at this point in time is that we make an inquiry into this topic. Uh, it will not be very easy to cover this in a short span of time that we have. But given the lights that Shorabindo has shed on this particular issue, uh, I think we will be able to cover uh, most certainly the broad areas. Now, the first thing that we would want to understand and know is that there was a particular point in time in India's history when the narrative on India, in Indian history, Indian culture, uh, Indian sociology, uh, Hinduism, and almost everything about India began to get distorted. And over a period of time, it got distorted quite significantly. You know, these days we talk a lot about narrative and we talk about the importance of narrative. Let me contextualize this from the perspective of Vedanta. You know, as many of you would know that Vedanta speaks about different planes of consciousness. It talks about Annamaya Kosha, Pranamaya Kosha, Manomaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha, Anandamaya Kosha, you know, which are basically manifestations of Satchidananda. All these different planes of consciousness are interconnected. They're discrete planes and at the same time they're interconnected with one another. For this discussion, it would suffice to say that Manomaya Kosha is interconnected with Pranamaya Kosha and Annamaya Kosha. Narrative essentially resides in Manomaya Kosha. And what it does is that it alters the Annamaya Kosha. In other words, narrative alters everything which is there on the physical plane, on the terrestrial plane. So around 1870, the 17, there was a particular narrative which was put in place. This narrative represented the Indian social system in a particular manner. And a lot of what we see in India today at this point in time is basically an outcome of that narrative. This narrative painted the Indian social system as hierarchical and oppressive. And basically made the so-called caste system the defining feature 
of Hinduism. This narrative continues and it continues in many different ways. Now, because our Indian social system got represented through caste system, which is described as hierarchical and oppressive, that our entire understanding about Varna and Jati has got convoluted. And because this narrative has been regurgitated over and over again, that there were certain categories of people who oppressed the rest, that for most Indians, they would not even want to touch this issue with a six foot pole. They want to abstain away from it as much as possible. The discussion, because many of us would know that the discussion has the potential and the capacity of destroying relationships of destroying interactions, relationships maybe you know decades old. It certainly has that possibility. What we are going to, to, to do today is to basically examine critically this narrative. The veracity or the truth or of this description that the Indian social system right from antiquity has been hierarchical and oppressive. What is the truth behind this statement? Is this statement true? Or is there a gross distortion? Or is this statement partially true, partially false? What, what is the matter? In the foundations of Indian culture, Sri has explained this system very nicely. And Sri says that the system had a very different understanding when it was put in place. And over a period of time, it underwent a certain degeneration. This degeneration is an outcome of internal decline and external aggression, and we are going to look at all the different shades which I just described. What was the system like when it was put in place? What was the system like in the Vedic times? When Sri says that things were done at the level of intuition and within the Indian social system or social existence, there was a lot of suppleness. There was a lot of flexibility. There weren't any fixed forms. And in order to understand this conceptualization, this enunciation, it will be very, very important for us to understand the Sankhya system. Very briefly, Sankhya, of course, is very broad, but I'm going to address that aspect of Sankhya or that part of Sankhya which is relevant to our discussion now. Sankhya is one of the first systems which basically talks about creation or manifestation. What does it say? It says that two principles, Purusha and Prakriti, 
were unmanifest. The manifestation had not happened, the creation had not happened. They were in a state where you can say they were beyond space time and causation. Prakriti has three modes or three qualities or three gunas. All these three gunas that are equal in nature were at rest. When Purush came in contact with Prakriti, this equilibrium got disturbed. And when this equilibrium got disturbed, manifestation began through the concentration of Sattva. The cosmic intelligent principle called Mahat was born or came into existence. This Mahat is manifested in an individual, in a human being as Buddhi. So Buddhi in every human being is constituted by Sattva. From Sattva, through the concentration of Rajas, Ahankar was born. The principle of self, individual self or the ego principle. Now, from Ahankar on one side, through the concentration of Sattva again, Manas, Gyanendriyas, and Karmendriyas were born on one side, and through the concentration of Tamas on the other side, Tanmatras and Mahabhutas came into existence. So this is how, you know, the cosmos came into existence. Now, when you look at the sequence of things, it is not that Rajas is born out of Sattva and Tamas is born out of Rajas. That is not the sequence that you get. What you get is that these important principles or these three important qualities they interacted with one another and gave birth to different entities within the universe. And there's a very important ancient principle that we have, which is that every microcosm has the macrocosm in it. So whatever is there in the cosmos, is present in every microcosm, including us. So all these three modes or all these three gunas, they are basically in flux. They are in flux and they have created different aspects of our being and most certainly our psychological being. What Shurabindo says, and this is some, and this is an ancient principle, that the predominance of a particular guna that basically gives a distinct swadharma or swabhav 
to an individual. So if there is predominance of sattva within an individual, the individual will be normally inclined, naturally inclined to pursue knowledge, calmness, peace, harmony, and so on and so forth. This individual will want to figure out the ultimate secrets of existence. At some point in time, he or she will go in search of the ultimate, which in our tradition is enunciated by Brahm. Because this individual is going to go after Brahm, because this individual is going to become interested in knowing the secrets of Brahm, this individual is a Brahm, is a, is a Brahman. Now, what is the next principle? The next principle is Rajas. And as I told you earlier, it's not that only one of the gunas is present in, in an individual. All the three gunas are present. It's just that predominance of a particular guna, it gives a certain psychological attribute to an individual. So the person who has the predominance of rajas in him or her is basically going to seek power. Will be an individual who will be interested in dominating others. Will be an interested, an individual who will, who will be interested in matters of governance and politics. Will be an individual who will be warrior-like. In the traditional scheme of things, this individual was Kshatriya. Similarly, if there was combination of Rajas and Tamas within an individual, and what does Tamas do? When there is predominance of Tamas within an individual, it is found that the individual will neither seek knowledge nor will be dynamic in orientation. The individual will be prone to inertia, laziness, and sloth. We don't need to have any judgment about this. This is the nature of reality. And if there's a combination of rajas and tamas within an individual, that individual will have the propensity or tendency to seek wealth. That individual will not be interested in seeking knowledge, or a career in which governance and politics are involved. That is not what is going to inspire the individual to act. It will basically be the seeking of wealth. This category of people were called as Vaishya. And in an individual who had the predominance of Tamas, he or she was designated by the name Shudra. So this is, this is how, you know, the system was conceptualized and it was very psychological when it was put into existence. And there's profound psychological truth behind it.
And this psychological truth also comes from what you find in the Vedas, where it is mandated that every dharma should be aligned with Rita. If Rita and dharma are aligned, then the universe flows properly. You know, everything flows. I'm sure some of you would be familiar with this term, the Tao, the, the Chinese Tao, you know, the flow of things. So what did the ancient seers do? They realized that the predominance of a particular guna, it creates a certain kind of a sabhav, which creates a certain kind of swadharma, which needs to be aligned with the vocation or karma that an individual chooses. You know, I see many young faces over here and I'm pretty much sure that you guys must be having this conversation amongst your friends where, you know, many of, uh, many of them must be saying, that they do not want to pursue this vocation or that vocation, but there is societal or parental pressure on them because of which they are doing certain things, right? Now, the reason why a lot of people are facing this trouble, this psychological battle, this existential crisis because of lack of choice of vocation or because of imposition of vocation on them is because their predominant guna is not being honored. They are not finding the right vocation. They are not finding the right karma. And when I say karma, you know, I'm not talking about prarab karma or how karma is actually understood in contemporary times today. I'm basically talking about the vocation of an individual. Now this, determined the varna of an individual. So you see that there is a particular equation that emerges over here. When you look at the Vedic times, guna equals swabhav, equals swadharma, equals karma, equals varna. This was the relationship. And Sri Aurobindo says, that the system had a lot of flexibility. What is the evidence for this? Going to the very root word of Varna. Varna comes from the word, from the root word, Vri. Vri means to choose. Interestingly, this is also the root word of bridegroom, Vara. So do you see what I'm saying? That in the ancient times, not only the Varna one chose, but women also chose their husbands. It is embedded in the, in the root of the word itself. There was choice in the matter. Now, because there's so much of superstition associated with Jyotisha, I'm sure 
that many of you have not done your charts or have not got your charts done. If you get the, if you get your birth charts done, if you get your Jan Kundli done, if you get your Jan Kundli made, you will find that there is a section there which talks about your Varna. Is this Varna birth-based? Is it, is it based on the family in which you are born? No, not at all. It is completely based on you as an individual. Because within the same family, if you will compare birth charts, you'll find that different people have different burners. And I think this understanding of Varna being individual was very much alive in the ancient times. And that is why there was flexibility and suppleness that Sri Aurobindo talks about. Many of you must have heard the story of Satyakam Jabala. What is the story? It is in one of the Upanishads. This individual goes to to an individual or to some individuals to learn. And there it is asked of him, what is his varna? And this individual says, well, you know, I don't have any idea. My mother is a maid. She worked in different houses. And in one of those homes, she conceived me. He honestly tells the sage what his mother had told him about his lineage. So when he narrates this story to the sage, the sage says that you can only be a Brahmin. Why? Because you are speaking the truth. It is not because, you know, the Brahmins were exalted. The Brahmins were manifesting certain characteristics. And because this individual, you know, was manifesting a certain characteristic that the sage decided that he was a Brahmin. You know, that actually reminds me of another story which you find in the Mahabharata. Karn, he disguises himself and goes to learn from another sage. And, you know, many of you know about that story, so I'm not going to repeat. He begins to get bitten by a scorpion and thinking that if he moved his legs uh, on which the sage or his teacher was sleeping, he would basically disturb the sleep of his teacher or guru. The scorpion kept stinging him and he sat still. And when blood began to ooze, it woke the sage up. And the sage Parshuram says, you know, who nurtured some issues or problems with the Kshatriyas, that Karna could not have been a Brahmin. A Brahmin by nature would not have tolerated the pain 
that the scorpion was given to the individual. So Pashuram says, well, you know, this is the this is the guna or the characteristic of a chatriya. You can only be a chatriya. And the story continues. I'm not going to go into the details. But what I'm trying to say to you is that till a certain point in time, the connection between guna and sabhava was very, very operative or operational within the Indian society. And there was a certain flexibility. You know, you find this from certain uh, verses in the Rig Veda also, where it becomes very clear that the child of a set of parents is not necessarily supposed to be undertaking the vocation of his or her parents. But as time progressed, and Sri talks about this, this suppleness or this flexibility, this began to get lost. And this began to get lost, particularly at a time when the population instead of pursuing truth through yogic means or intuitive means began to pursue knowledge through intellectual means. You know, when the system began to get stratified, when systems began to get made, out of the spiritual truths that had been accessed at one point in time. And this stratification that I just spoke about was also the cause of the internal decline of the Hindu society or the Indian society. And why do I say this? I say this because the social system became birth-based. So the inherent flexibility that the system had at one point in time, or it had to a certain point in time, began to get lost. What is the evidence for this? What I have done is that I have gone into this particular book thoroughly. This is Gautam Dharma Sutra. This is the earliest of the extant Dharma Sutra, which is available at this point in time, where the Dharma Sutra uh, written before this one, I'm pretty much sure. Because there was a lineage, there was a lineage of Dharma Sutra. And there were certainly quite a few that were written later. And the commentaries on these Dharma Sutras came to be known as Dharma Shastras. And Manusprati is one of the Dharma Shastras. There are many others. We don't need to go into the details. But when I go into this text, I certainly do find that the system has started losing its flexibility. And as it is losing its flexibility, it is becoming birth-based. And when it became birth-based, 
the earlier equation that I spoke about, that got changed. What is the equation that you find now? At this point in time, the, the, the equation is Varna equals karma. And once again, karma vocation. So it was your, it was your Varna, which was, which was birth-based, which was determining your karma or the vocation that you are going to engage in. And it was supposed that these two will basically give rise to your Svabhav, Svadharma, and so on and so forth. So what is it that you find here? The spiritual principle or the inner connection which the system had earlier began to get distorted. It began to become externalized. It began to become birth-based. And instead of this system remaining or this understanding remaining an individual affair, it became a communal affair. But here also, you know, we are not certain when this text was, was written or when it came about. The system had not become completely ossified because there is a certain flexibility that you see within the system. And what are some of those flexibilities? I'm going to enumerate them to you. If you did not engage in a particular karma for a few generations, then your family would lose the varna. And the details are given. If a, if, if a Brahmin family did not engage in the karma of a Brahmin for three generations, and instead did the karma of a Kshatriya, then in the fourth generation, the family would become a Kshatriya. Similarly, if a, if a Brahmin family engaged in the karma or the work or the vocation of a Vaishya for five generations, then in the sixth generation, the family would become Vaishya. And if for seven generations, the family engaged in the work of a Shudra, then the, fam then the family would become Ashudra. This system was called Varnatkarsh. Consists of two words. Varn plus Apkarsh. Similarly, you know, one could actually climb up the ladder. One could regain one's lost Varna status. This process was called Varnopkarsh. This is described. Now, you know, this, this story is very fascinating. Actually, you, you should know about it. See, it is good to have opinions and ideas later, but only after the inquiry has been made. You know, I'm not saying that we need to subscribe to this model. I'm not glorifying this model. I'm just telling you how this was you know, how the changes happened, how things moved from, you know, <clears throat> uh, from time to time. 
So what we are doing is that we are looking at the stages. When you stop at the time of Gautam, who created this Dharmsut by the name of Gautam Dharmsut, you find that though the system had become stratified, it still was retaining its flexibility. In this time, inter-varna marriages were also allowed. Not all inter-varna marriages were allowed though. Only, with, only some were allowed. And they are called anulom marriages. What was an anulom marriage? The anulom marriage was when the man was, you know, of, of the same or a higher order than the woman. When the situation was reversed, those marriages did not have sanction of the Dharma Shastra, Dharma Sutra tradition. What happened to those people who engaged in marriages that were not allowed, that were called Patilom marriages? They were banished from the fourfold order. This is how they system of untouchability in India was born. These people were called Patit. And contact with these people was suppressed, was negated. In fact, it was punishable. If one engaged in a Patit, you know, he or she would, could also become a Patit. And these so-called Patit basically settled on the fringes of the society. That is the reason even today in rural India, if you travel, you will find that the so-called untouchables, you know, I'm, I don't like using these terms, but you know, we have to engage in analysis. I'm just like being a doctor, you know, who's, who's conducting a diagnosis. They live on the fringes of the society. And they live in between human settlements. This is a reality which you will find even today. Now, this system does not talk about prison. There were other people also, you know, who would violate social norms and customs from time to time. They were also banished. They also became Patit and they would live on the fringes of the society. There's a very detailed uh, description which is given of various classification of people that are born through different kinds of anulom as well as pratilom marriages. Now, many of you would know that the ancient Indian society was divided in four ashramas. The Varna system was only followed in Brahmachari and Grihastha. I'm repeating this. It was only followed in Brahmacharya and, and Grihastha. It was not followed in Vanprast and Sanyas. And this entire thing is very logical. Why do I say that it is logical? An important condition for becoming a yogi is 
basically to transcend the gunas the three gunas within the indian system of thought can i have more faces please you know it's i'm telling you it's a uh, it feels absolutely weird i know young people you know uh, they don't need a lot of contact you know they can communicate with people even without looking at one another but i'm little old school i need to look at people you know so if i don't see faces then it's very difficult to communicate i see some movement ah uh, with others it seems you know they've just turned the thing on and maybe doing other things but that's okay <clears throat> so going back to where we were, where we were so you know for an individual to become a yogi for an individual to become enlightened for an individual to gain nirvana it is extremely important that he or she transcends the three gunas and when he or she transcends the three gunas the individual becomes triguna tita there is a term you know which our culture uses for yogis triguna tita when an individual takes van prast or sanyas the idea is that he or she is basically going to engage in practices that will lead to the transcendence of three gunas that individual is on its on his or her way to becoming triguna tita and that is why even today in traditional india nobody asks the jati of a sadhu van prasthis and sanyasis they don't have varna and jati jati na poocho sadhu ki it's a very common refrain that you will find in rural india even today you know most illiterate of the indians know this they might not be able to give you the metaphysical explanation you know why this is happening they, they might not be able to explain sankhya to you but this understanding is embedded in the folk tradition it's there it's part of the folk wisdom you see so what i'm saying to you is that even when the system began to get stratified it did not lose its flexibility now in terms of hierarchy which you definitely see you know in gautam dharmasutra what you do not come across is an absolute hierarchy associated with eri varna why there are many different scales of hierarchy you have knowledge hierarchy and when you have the knowledge hierarchy what is it that you find you find brahman at the top kshatriya next to him or her then vaishya and then shudra then you have the scale of uh, power hierarchy you have kshatriya at the top then you have brahmins then you have vaishya and then you have shudra now listen to this this is this is a this is very important one wealth hierarchy you have vaishya at the top 
you have kshatriyas then you have shudra and you have brahmins at the bottom it was mandated that shudras be paid for their work whereas a brahmin was supposed to survive on daan and nothing but daan and that is the reason in the jazak stories and many of uh, the folk tales you will come across this term daridra brahman very very commonly and in fact some of the poorest brahmins in india uh today survive and they survive because traditionally they were not supposed to accumulate wealth so the brahmin families that kept aligned themselves to the dharma shastra principles they never ended up accumulating wealth for themselves and that is the reason you find some of the poorest brahmins in india today this is the reason then you have the service hierarchy in service hierarchy you find shudra at the top vaishya next to shudra then kshatriya and then brahman now when you bring all hierarchies together the sum does not give you know one vector all these different vectors they basically cancel out one another and that is why you do not find an absolute hierarchy for one particular varna but what is the hierarchy that you fall that you find in dharma sutra you find hierarchy of conduct the brahmins they were given respect they were given respect for knowledge and conduct in fact you know there is there is another vector which comes into play here this whole system is very complicated and complex you know it is not very simple irrespective of the varna of an individual the age of an individual had to be respected you know this is there in dharma shastra and most indians they know this subconsciously or unconscious they respect the age of an individual so you know this very linear uh straight jacketed understanding of hierarchy was created on our social did not exist in ancient india till a very long period i think a lot of time i will i will just uh, you know this is with regards to varna and geeta there are many individuals today floating around you know and i will name them particularly the brahmins of south india who haven't have a very interesting take on this chatur varanyam verse that you find in the bhagavad gita shri krishna says chatur varanyam maya shristam guna karma vibhag right what these people are doing and this is this is quite extensive and that is the reason i'm telling you uh or brother let me put it this way i'm addressing this issue a lot of people have this understanding that when karma is being spoken about in this verse prarabdh karma 
or karmafala is being spoken about. This is not true. When Sri Krishna mentions karma, he is basically talking about vocation. And when he talks about vocation, he basically does the same thing, you know, which we mentioned at the beginning of this talk. He establishes the equation of guna equaling uh, swabhav, equaling swadharma, equaling varna, equaling karma. The inner principle, the inner principle, the inner psycho-spiritual principle of this verse becomes extremely important. So when you are told that karma means kanfala, these people are erroneously quoting the Gita. In fact, they should not quote the Gita. They should quote the Dharma, the, the Dharma Sutra or the Dharma Shastra tradition. Because in the Dharma Shastra tradition, it is clearly mentioned that the family into which you will be born will be basically be dependent on your karma, your kanfala. So if Dharma Sutra is used to give this kind of, a trans, of uh, an explanation, it can be understood. But when it comes to Gita, this is a wrong interpretation. This is a wrong interpretation and what happens is that the understanding that you find in the Smriti tradition gets transposed on the Shruti tradition. And from the Hindu perspective, it is very important that we understand the Shrutis properly. You know, the Dharma Shastras can be junked. They are not supposed to be eternal. They were dependent on time, place, and the individual who created it. But what you find in the Shruti are basically eternal principles. And understanding this eternal principle is extremely important. Because if you understand this, then it will be important for you to understand your Svabhava. And then, despite different kind of opposition that you will find, you will pick up a vocation which will be in tune with your predominant guna. And Sri Aurobindo says that when you engage in something like this, you begin to give force to the other gunas also. Let's say, for instance, you know, you have the predominance of sattva in you and you take up the vocation of seeking knowledge. As you are seeking knowledge over a period of time, you will find that your Kshatriya tendencies, your Vaishya tendencies, your Shudra tendencies, they are also gaining more traction and power. You are, you know, you will start becoming a more integral person. And through this process, you will come to a point where you will be able to transcend your gunas. And that is why in Bhagavatam, there's a particular verse which states 
that if an individual from any varna, if he or she has performed his or her grihastha duties properly, then he or she will stand an equal chance of gaining moksha in comparison to any other individual from any other varna. So it is not, please listen to this. It is not that a Brahmin had a more chance of gaining moksha than a Shudra. This is completely untrue. And that is why when you look at the litany of sages in India, you find sages coming from all Varna. And it is extremely erroneous to call the sages Brahmins. A Brahmin is an individual who is guided by Sattva Guna. A yogi or a sage is an individual who has gone beyond the Gunas, has become Guna, has, has become Triguna Tita. It's a very important distinction. Even the learned, you know, of the people make this error in making this distinction. There is a fundamental difference between a yogi and a Brahmin. These two categories should never be conflated. And anyone who is conflating these two categories does not really understand the foundations of the Varna, does not understand the nuts and bowls on which this system was pegged, does not understand does not understand the foundations you know, of, of the system, does not understand the metaphysics of the system. So, and, you know, and this is particularly important for uh, younger people who are engaged uh, in this exercise of seeking vocation for themselves, that it is important that you figure out what your predominant Guna is. You know, if you want to join hotel management, don't let anyone tell you that you need to become a scholar. If you want to become a scholar, then do everything to become a scholar. If you want to become a politician, do everything to become a politician. It is only we who create this gradation. There is nothing wrong in individuals taking any vocation as long as the vocation is in tune with the inner constitution of that individual. With this, you will not only bring forth your other tendencies, you will also be able to eventually transcend the gunas and basically become yogis in the future. So with this, I will basically end. This is a, this is a long topic. Uh, and, and, I, and I hope, and I really hope that in the future, collective, we are able this system this transition. Thank you, thank From you. From the times when it was established to the times we find ourselves in currently. Thank you. Yeah.
thank you sir thank you for this uh, erudite lecture and actually it was for me it was like i i am having a conversation with my past <laughs> although it was a one week uh, lecture but i was literally going back and i was having a conversation with my past and so we are running actually we are running uh, out of time so i think i'll introduce manan to take this forward manan is a computer engineer from delhi school of engineering and then did his mba in finance from iim lucknow he is currently on a sabbatical and trying to seek something uh, you know some depth of philosophy life and everything about it so manan why don't you take uh, take the conversation forward uh thank you adarsh thank you also to the organizers uh, for this wonderful opportunity it's a topic which is very close to my heart and uh, i think uh, kunjan did a very elaborate job at setting the ball rolling and i hope that the second half of the program we'll be able to further build upon it and also add some new dimensions what i'll do is i'll quickly share my own thoughts very briefly given that we have a lack of time and then i'll introduce uh, ashish and nilesh uh they can probably speak for 15 20 minutes and then hopefully we can have a nice q and a with the participants and uh, it is a topic which needs to be contemplated upon and uh, tackled over and over again so you know uh, some of it uh, kunjan already covered but what what i really wanted to bring out is that the system is actually based on a very sound logic and you know it was not merely to keep the society functional it was much more than that it was not about just keeping it politically going or economically sustainable it had a very well thought out nuanced uh, idea about spiritual evolution and growth in the collective also very intri intrinsically you know uh, embedded uh, but unfortunately that got lost over the last many centuries and there's been a lot of distortion and uh, am i audible all right can someone just show a thumbs up okay yeah, yeah. um it got it got so um badly distorted over the last many centuries and there have been systematic assaults on our psyche and especially uh, what bothers me a lot uh, to observe all around us that even in india we are very uh, timid about wearing our hindu hindu identity on our sleeve and uh, we don't have a sense of collective pride and um, also in the education the mainstream education is not talking about our scriptures it's not talking about the the psycho spiritual depth in our uh, uh, you know in the gita like kundan mentioned also some of the upanishads uh, he touched upon and he talked about rita dharma and the alignment in a state of flow uh, the tao tao subhava so dharma there's so much now the thing is that you know the system was meant to be such that the society kind of operates both individually and collectively in a very harmonious manner and leads to some sense of a conscious evolution which is also is very fascinating in sri aurobindo's thought and you know like kundan mentioned there was an intuitive understanding of uh, a lot of things and it was embedded in the psyche my own grandmother who was illiterate Uh, was so wise and uh, probably the wisest person that I have encountered in my life yet, and so I really do uh, resonate with a lot of things that Kundan said, and uh, I think the distortions around this being largely heredity and also the sense of hierarchy, which I think was very fascinating. What he touched about the four 
you know, attributes and how the order was also very different. That was very fascinating, Gundan. I think that's very important. And thank you for that. Uh, I believe that in our education system, there is a uh, there's a urgent need to introduce a lot of these things. And I think Ashram and Sampadda in particular have been doing a great job at that. And um, with that, I'll, I'll kind of uh, stop here and introduce uh, Adarsh and Nilesh and uh, request them to share their thoughts for 15, 20 minutes. And then hopefully we'll have around 20, 20 odd minutes for a nice Q&A where Kundan can also obviously jump back in because there are some questions for him also on the chat screen. So uh, let me introduce Nilesh first. I'm, I'm reading this out. <clears throat> Nilesh Marek is an experimenter, questioner, student and explorer of the human potential space where behavior, systems, culture, and consciousness affect personal growth and creative novelty. He has three decades of experience in blue chip corporations like Coates, Viola, Anderson Consulting and Infosys, as well as uh, some startups. These assignments covered a wide array of consumer and industrial products, management consulting and IT in various countries and cultures. Over the last decade, he has been engaged in multi and transdisciplinary research and study across philosophy, social sciences, psychology, complexity, and spirituality with a total, with a total immersion and in integral yoga for the last few years. He has a BTEC from IIT Bombay and an MBA from IIM Bangalore. Uh, welcome Nilesh and Ashish. Uh, Ashish Dhar is a Kashmiri Pandit, a refugee in his own country. He is a mechanical engineer and currently an entrepreneur. Mr. Dhar is the co-founder of Pragyata Naput Foundation and the director of operations of the Indic Collective Trust. He is a practicing Hindu who is deeply interested in exploring the unfathomable depths of Indic knowledge. He is dedicated to bringing awareness about civilizational issues. Uh, welcome to Ashish as well. Um, if it's okay, Ashish, uh, probably you could go first. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Madam. Thank you, uh, you Sampadananji, for uh, inviting me. So, um, thank you, Rashtram School, and thank you, Sampadananji, for having me on this panel. And uh, uh, thank you uh, for uh, for having this discussion in the first place because it's extremely important. Uh, Kundanji set the tone for uh, the conversation going forward, and it was a very interesting uh, session so far. And I hope that, you know, some of the things that I say, I wasn't expecting to be speaking for 15, 20 minutes. I thought it was, a, it was a panel discussion. So I, uh, my, my, uh, uh, words may not be as structured as expected, but yeah, I'll, I'll try and do justice to these, to the time that is given to me. Um, my own interest in caste, uh, was quite random. Uh, I haven't, you know, uh, I started taking interest in it about five or six years ago when, uh, when the JNU agitation uh, began and when they started doing the Tukde Tukde, Bharat Tere Tukde Honge, all those things. When that got started, that really interested me in what's really going on and the noise about burning of Manusmriti and stuff like that. Uh, however, my interest in Sri Aurobindo's writing goes back uh, several decades now and uh, and what i found interesting is that you know when when uh, i was invited to this panel the first question that struck me was 
how do you actually make uh, make sense of what Sri Aurobindo has said about caste and what his views on caste really were. Um, and unfortunately, I don't really have an answer because in my reading of Sri Aurobindo's works, I found very little uh, to do with caste, very little mention of it. There are some uh, conversations here and there with disciples, perhaps a paragraph or two out of his very long, uh, you know, copious work that we have available uh, in the current times, thanks to the uh, work done by many scholars and uh, devotees. And so um, to really get a sense of his understanding of caste, uh, honestly, I found uh, the material insufficient. But whatever I could, uh, you know, salvage from it, uh, so that seemed to give you a very, you know, sort of balanced perspective as you would expect from Sri Aurobindo. Uh, and I'll just, you know, read out one of the things that he has written. Um, and I quote, he says, this was what we meant when we said that caste was a socialistic institution. For Hindu civilization being spiritual based its institutions on spiritual and moral foundations and subordinated the material elements and material considerations. Now this part is very important where he says, caste therefore was not only an institution which ought to be immune from the secondhand denunciations so long in fashion, but a supreme necessity without which Hindu civilization could not have developed its distinctive character or worked out its unique mission. So here's a you know, fairly straightforward uh, endorsement, you could say, of, uh, of the institution as such. But again, as I said, he's not written much. In other places, he has referred to and he's uh, talked about the spirit of caste arrogance and exclusiveness that crept into the system and that eventually led to uh, the downfall of uh, the Hindu civilization and its uh, subjugation. Um, I am not entirely sure if uh, the institution itself can be singled out uh, as the reason for uh, the subjugation of Hindus for several centuries. Uh, perhaps there may be some merit in that argument, perhaps caste and its uh, unique evolution or, or let's say degradation, uh, perhaps that contributed to us getting conquered uh, eight, eight or nine centuries back. Um, but whether it is the single most, the single factor or the single most important factor, I have uh, no data to really make that judgment. And I, I really don't know if anyone as yet has come to that uh, conclusive uh, judgment. Um, now, as far as caste is concerned, and there is a very, uh, uh, you know, very ignorant sort of attempts in the Western academia, as Kundanji said, of equating the entire Hindu religion with a very, uh, you know, with just one of its uh, aspects, which is the Varnagavastha. Uh, and uh, there are some scholars uh, some Western scholars who've gone to the extent of saying that if you remove caste, uh, there is nothing left of the Hindu religion. Uh, notwithstanding the complete uh, 
you know for the lack of a better word i mean it's a uh, it's a preposterous idea really to say such a thing uh, to make such a claim um but what it does point to is the if i may use the word integral integral nature of uh, hindu civilization where you cannot really break it down into parts uh, because there is a very very close very very solid strong mesh of institutions and ideas that hold it together and of course caste is one of those so if you really take out caste and look at it in isolation it may look grotesque or it may look evil uh and then you may also go on to make the claim that there is nothing other than caste that is only because you haven't really understood it from a uh, holistic perspective you don't really understand the society uh, as an integral whole and how each part informs the other and how each part supports the other so that's really the trouble of uh the 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 modern western world view uh and uh, if i may say so even newtonian physics uh does make that um uh, error in a given context right so uh so that dualism and that separation of mind and matter sacred and profane similarly you know social and religious uh secularism itself dividing society into secular sphere and the religious sphere all that is not really part of hindu society right so um therefore the confusion that caste is equal to religion caste is equal to hindu religion and that if you remove caste there is nothing else in fact it is the opposite that if you remove anything else also then there is nothing if you remove sampradayas from the hindu then perhaps there is nothing else remaining if you remove if you remove temples from uh, hindu religion then perhaps there is nothing else remaining right if you remove ecology from hindu religion there is nothing else remaining because the structure collapses and uh, that goes true for caste as well so having said that uh, you know i'll just focus on caste a little bit and i'll try to share my perspective because i've been uh, reading and researching about it for the last 5 6 years uh, and i co-authored several articles on this as well uh, and created much controversy so um, so caste has three elements right spiritual economic and social and uh, the social aspect is really reflected in the widespread <clears throat> or the tendency to marry within your caste Uh, which sri aurobindo has also pointed out that that is perhaps the last remaining citadel of caste where if you uh, you know it's not enough he says at one uh, place uh, i read somewhere that uh, in order to um, you know r- remove caste from indian society uh, it is not enough to interdine intermix and all that the key is to intermarry and uh, that has been the long standing feature of Uh, which is to which is endogamy uh, and that reflects in the social sphere the economic sphere is of course the trade secrets and the guilds and why there is a tendency in the first place of marrying within your caste uh, and the economic reason for that is of course to preserve uh, trade secrets pass on uh, knowledge and uh, not lose the com- competitive advantage in in the market 
and the third is the spiritual aspect which is uh, say that you know like for example there are several temples in india where uh, only particular jatis are supposed to be archakas whether they are brahmin or non non brahmin that's not the point but there are several uh, temples where uh, you cannot really just you know uh, conduct an exam and ask someone to become the priest that is a very christian very pastor sort of making a pastor sort of approach to hinduism which does not work so there is a lineage that you go through and that lineage is connected to the deity and the deity has himself or herself appointed that kula to serve him or her so that's the spiritual aspect of caste as well um now the thing about the the difficulty in understanding caste is essentially the difficulty in understanding where we are today as a society and uh, um understanding the effects of uh, the colonial era the colonial rule on our society today whether it is the outward outward manifestations in the form of uh, you know let's say railways and transport and you know all the material progress that has happened in the last 200 years or whether it is in terms of how we think uh, and the mindset that we have developed today uh what you would call the modern mindset and uh, therefore uh, in other words it is the difficulty in coming to terms with modernity itself because if you understand modernity then you understand what pre modern life or you can imagine what pre modern life would have been like and why uh, an institution like caste or let's say you know the varna jati system was inevitable not just necessary so um some of the things that i done i'll just make some random points and probably uh, you know there's not much time to get into the depth of the subject but i'll uh, try and cover as much as i can and if there are any questions i'll be happy to answer um so when i say that there is the uh, issue of understanding modernity i think the primary uh, implication of that is that we must first understand before making allegations about accessibility to education for all for the whole society and whether it was a brahmanical system designed to keep privilege restricted to a certain caste or class and to keep others in an exploited state i think we'll first have to introspect and understand what education really is is education really what we go through today uh, by means of schooling and becoming uh, you know eventually joining a factory or or a corporation and working uh, as a you know as an employee somewhere uh, or is education something much wider something much deeper which really provides meaning to our lives uh, so that's a question that needs to be uh, you know pondered on individually and uh, in much depth before we arrive at such thing the the point which i'm trying to make is that when they say that uh, you know yesterday when i posted uh, a tweet saying that i'll be participating in a discussion there was an earnest question on twitter which said that okay sri aurobindo was not a brahmin and i belong and the and the person who had tweeted he had said that i belong to the same caste as sri aurobindo and i am wondering whether he had the adhikara in the traditional scheme of things to uh, talk about these things to you know to hold forth on such subjects given that he was not a brahmin so that's basic i mean that's 
that's the kind of misconceptions that are prevalent in society today you know when we say uh, what were the adhikaras of the brahmins or what were those things that were restricted to the brahmins and others were not allowed that was only as far as the rituals are concerned right the ritualistic elements of the veda and uh, you know the, some of the uh, recitations and stuff like that but uh, there is no there was no bar on people exercising their uh, mental faculties and you know and, and philosophizing speculating all that was it's it's simply impossible for a society to uh, to function for thousands of years if there is such kind of tyranny happening so so there is no basis in that uh, in that assertion that you know there was people were singled out and people were kept away from knowledge uh, if you look at the multiplicity of the texts itself right uh, the mahabharata itself starts with uh, the proclamation that this is a text for um, uh, dvija shudra and uh, and uh, stri right uh, and uh, both the itihasas the primary itihasas ramayana and mahabharata they are performative texts uh, for several several centuries in fact for millennia they have been uh, passed on and they've become the central texts the backbone of the indian civilization because they've been performed and they you know the performing performing artists have integrated that with their own uh, art and gone about traveling the entire country and uh, you know uh, performing those texts ram leela being a, being an example that we can see even in these days uh, so so to say that uh, the vedas were uh, you know not uh, not meant for others and uh, stuff like that is to uh, is to betray a profound lack of understanding of how things functioned in the pre modern era also uh, the the issue of initiation for example when we talk about uh, janeu and why shudras did not have janeu nobody really mentions probably many don't even know that shudras had their own initiation rites they had their own pagadi bandna they had their even even some communities had their own janeu ceremonies uh, and uh, there was no bar on such things because they went through a totally different kind of education and this education which is why i started my uh, you know this making this point with uh, with with the uh, plea that we need to first understand what education really is right so if you are a brahmin and you go through 14 years of uh, ved adhyayan before you can actually become or be deemed to be an expert in certain subjects uh, parallelly the shudra the artisan is going through uh, his own education which lasts uh, 10 to 14 years and that is as rigorous as the as the education of the brahmin or the education of the kshatriya and that the the proof of that you will see in the art, architectural and artic, uh, artistic accomplishments of uh, the hindu civilization by way of uh, you know by what the shudras have done right so Uh, there is no question about their uh, being educated even having access to not just access to but uh, in some cases having a complete command over sanskrit you have inscriptional evidence where the shudras have uh, themselves uh, written about 
their uh, the the piece of art or piece of uh, the the uh, a sculpture or the temple that they have made and they have given credit to themselves or the chief architecture uh, chief architect in uh, sanskrit itself uh, also the kind of uh, techno uh, technical expertise required to build and to create such forms of art and architecture uh would not have been possible without advanced knowledge of material sciences mathematics so these are just logical deductions you got to make and there is enough scholarship which is already present now, this is not these are not original claims that are there is enough scholarship which is already present which talks about these things so uh unfortunately what has happened is that these forms these uh scholars and these uh, uh you know works of scholarship have been systematically kept away from public consciousness because we know that the academia has a certain um, agenda of its own especially uh, in the west as well as its subordinates in india there's some and and uh, given that uh, sway of the academia they don't find it convenient to uh, to promote such works and to talk about these things they just stonewall such scholars and keep them away from uh, public discourse and recognition um i'll make i think i've uh, sort of almost reached my uh, uh, stipulated time but i'll just make another uh, speculative comment here because this is something that i've um, sort of uh, arrived at on independently on my own uh, through various readings uh, and the speculative comment is about the uh, anuloma and pratiloma marriages that uh, kundan ji mentioned Uh, and it is my understanding that the varna system uh, and the jati arrangement in which society was organized it was uh, designed as sri aurobindo has said that it was designed to uh, fulfill certain uh, roles you see and uh, to to create a society of a certain kind and that society uh, i'll just read out what sri aurobindo has said the original purpose of the caste system has been lost in ancient times there was the distinction of caste with a clear purpose it was sought to develop different types and marriage within the same caste was intended to help this system the brahmins sought to develop certain intellectual powers to make their minds subtle for the consideration of higher things the kshatriyas sought to develop character which was all important for the functions of that class the vaishyas also sought to develop a particular kind of intellectual powers which could be of help to them in the matters of business the fourfold distinction could not be adhered to when there occurred the mixture of races so he is talking about endogamy here and the necessity of endogamy for uh, achieving this kind of a mix in society uh, so if you look at i mean if you go through manusmriti for example you will find that the text is really obsessed with the achara of not, none other than the brahmins right it is only talking not not only but predominantly it is concerned with how the brahmins should conduct themselves and in that way manusmriti is a very very brahman oriented text right and uh, if we um, try and make sense of what the manusmriti uh, asks of the brahmins in terms of how to conduct themselves and how to um, you know organize themselves what kind of lifestyle they should have it is what you would call oppressive in the uh, modern lingo 
it is oppressive for brahmins itself it's i mean to live like a brahmin is to be in denial of all kinds of luxuries it is to be an ascetic of the highest order it is to you know to live a frugal life and you know not to accumulate and to just you know basically be an exemplar uh, for the rest of the society in terms of uh, being an ideal uh, sage not everyone not every brahmin would be able to achieve that but that was the idea and for do i mean in order to achieve that right uh, who in their right mind would, would would really want to be a brahmin unless forced to be right so now the statement that i'm trying to make here is that for the brahmin caste to even exist and to be true to its vocation and its ideal it would not be possible without some some bit of coercion and it is as true for the brahmins as it is for the rest of the society in fact it is more applicable to the brahmin than it is for the rest of the society because as you go to the other castes the amount of uh, the demand from uh, you as uh, as an individual uh, is lesser and lesser in terms of what you have to uh, the kind of lifestyle that you have to live so uh, pratiloma marriages would make sense in such a scenario because otherwise uh, you know <laughs> no female would really be willing to live a life of uh, a brahmin's wife you see because uh, it is such a difficult uh, life to live i mean and and if you go through the classical texts you see all kinds of uh, uh, evidence with respect to the point that i am making where the where the rishika or sometimes the the wife of the sage who is not herself a rishi also she is uh, not very very happy with her surround her uh, you know the kind of life that she is living let's take sudama's life for it sudama's wife for example she the kind of things she says to sudama are uh, indicative of her you know of her exasperation with the kind of poverty that she is going through right so that's you know that's a speculative thing that i just want to mention because anuloma and pratiloma was mentioned so that it was necessary in uh, perhaps to maintain that kind of uh, dharmic structure and dharma is not necessarily uh, what the spontaneous expression of society is because as sri aurobindo talks about there are several types of nature there is the lower nature there is the higher nature and in order to align with the higher nature you will have to sort of keep the lower nature in check the vital impulses so to speak uh, the mental distractions right all that um so there's there's much like i said there is uh, my talk may not be very structured and i think i've uh, already exceeded my time so i'll stop here uh, but uh, i'd be happy to uh, answer any questions that uh, people have on this thank you thanks ashish um, i think you added a couple of very interesting uh, new points and we'll build on this but uh... It's already eleven forty. Let's uh, have Nilesh uh, go now. And Nilesh, if you could uh, kind of wind up by say twelve, we'll have a good twenty-five thirty minutes for Q and A. After Nilesh, we'll jump straight to Q and A. So um, please uh, do write your questions on the chat screen and uh, try to keep them short and crisp. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you uh, to uh, Sampath and the Rashtram team for this invitation. We have had a very uh, comprehensive coverage of various points around this 
rather contentious subject. What I am thinking of doing is uh, bring about a few points uh, from Sri Aurobindo's. I'm not a, an expert in Varna uh, and Jati per se, but a few points that come up from a philosophical perspective uh, and related to what has already been mentioned here, I, I think we can, it will add to the discussion. And now uh, let me start off by one of the questions that came up I saw in the chat. Um, that how did this degeneration that Kundan mentioned, there, is, there has been a certain degeneration of an original a deeper significance into something which is not so beneficial, something which is crude and in many ways undesirable. Now, question came uh, question came up that how did this ossification happen? How did this degeneration happen? Uh, there is a kind of answer Sri Aurobindo himself provides, which I will try to uh, propose as an explanation for why this has happened, why this degeneration happened. And this ties in to the, to the whole movement of nature in the evolution of mankind itself. Um, mankind began in the earlier days, in the days of the original spiritual heritage, the rishis actually operated from an intuitive level of consciousness. Uh, there's somebody asking a question, but I probably will take it at, uh, at 12 o'clock since we'll have enough time after that. Uh, now, what happened is that whilst a few rishis operated from an intuitive level of consciousness, the larger part of society kind of operated at an infrarational level or at a sub-rational level, more instinctive level. So it was the intention of nature throughout the world and also in India to have a much wider proliferation of the intellectual mental development in humanity in a larger section of humanity to then go back to reclaiming the intuitive power. So this is the whole thing about the height as well as the widening in the process of natural evolution so that there is a stronger and a more secure foundation as the evolution of consciousness happens through ascent and integration. So we are going back to the, to the root of this whole issue as to why did this happen? And Varnajati is just one exemplification of a much broader trend of the evolution of human consciousness itself. To make the mental rational the intellectual foundation strong, we have about two millennia of cultural development in which Europe and the Western world have actually taken more covert and wider leaps in terms of outer forms of human endeavor. And that is why we have a much more overt and well-known development of Western philosophical thought and even physical sciences in the West and India although having originated many of these in an earlier age, kind of went into, went into covert mode, right? If we map this trajectory of consciousness to social development, we find an answer 
of that Sri Aurobindo provides in his nomenclature of social development in the human cycle. So just to quickly capture, in the human cycle, he builds on Lamprecht's terminology to actually trace the cycle of social development in a collective sense, which maps the individual psychology, because ultimately the collective is the sum total of individuals. So Shiorbindo names five, taking on from Lamprecht's terminology, five stages of social development. But unlike in the West, where it is defined usually through outer forms and means, Sri Aurobindo meant it from a psychological position. So he names, he defines the symbolic, the typal, the conventional, the individual rational, and the subjective. And these have to be, because this is not physical material science, this is to be taken flexibly, that each of these are not watertight distinctions, but they all blend into each other. They blend into each other in every individual as well as in every society. But to the point that Kundan mentioned, there's a certain predominance and that predominance at a particular time frame helps us characterize the, so the social developmental stature with that particular term. So the symbolic is essentially the stage of social development where mankind discovers his relationship with nature and the outer forms are not taken for their literal value, but the upper echelons of society who, who have developed the intuitive level of consciousness try to look for a meaning behind the symbol. So symbolic represents the quest for deeper, higher and inner truths behind outer symbols. So if you, if one were to think of the, the dispensation of spirit, in the typological development of the individual and the corporate existence, one can map the four varnas to four parts of the divine body. If were to, one were to symbolically anthropoformize, to make an anthropomorphic representation, we have the mouth representing something, the Brahman, the arms representing the Kshatriyas, the thighs representing the Vaishyas, and the feet representing the Shudras. This is not a question of inferiority or superiority in the way it is being promulgated today, largely as a result of, or to a certain extent, the British, you know. But this has to be seen as an overall constitution of the divine body that requires the fullness of expression of the intention of spirit in manifestation, right? So this symbolic this symbolic understanding of the parts of the divine body, not in a literal sense, but representative of the intention of the spirit to embody these different faculties in the social fabric through individuals was the symbolic stage. This is the origin of the Varna system. Now, if you take the next stage as typal, Typal basically means that every individual exercises a certain leaning, a certain preference based on inner nature, disposition, hidden competency, developmental imperative, all of these things, and therefore makes a choice of what he or she would like to do, how he or she would like to 
operate and contribute to the overall totality of social development. So there is a mapping of individual development to social development. So the title indicates that every person makes a choice on he or she would like to do. And this has to be flexible because this is not just a watertight one-time denomination of a role, but a part of a self-developmental progression of an individual. Every individual within a particular life may choose the path of knowledge, may choose the path of leadership, administration, and even war, may choose the path of interaction and relationship and mutuality and exchange, and may choose the path of unconditional service, including the performance of menial tasks. And every individual has the freedom or ought to have the freedom to even choose the sequence or the parallelism of these choices. Some of these can be parallel, some of these can be in series. So from the symbolic, we move to the typal. From the typal, we move to the conventional, which is where humanity moved from an intuitive clearly to a mental mode of consciousness or approached a mental mode of consciousness through the adherence to conventions. A conventional society is a society where the outer form or the function or the ritual or the mechanical act unfortunately ends up assuming a greater significance than the inner truth of which the form is just a representation. So it is unfortunate, yet it was necessary in the progression of nature, as we discussed earlier, for there to be a conventional age. And I would say that more than the Western world, India or large parts of India are still stuck at the conventional level of mental development. Where going to the temple and chanting something or giving an offering and then coming back and doing a corrupt act and almost trying to justify the fact that because I have done the chanting, this will be forgiven. That is what is called the conventional mode of thinking. In, in, in Western developmental psychology, this is called the mythic mode of operation. <clears throat> now, needless to say, conventional had to make way for what is called the individual rational. This is the fourth stage in Lamprecht and Aurobindo's elaboration. The mental, in, the individual rational is where all conventions are questioned. As you can see, this is absolutely necessary so that there is no, so that society does not get strangulated in the encrustation of conventionalism. There needs to be and has been the individual rational where every individual questions every convention and demands answers from a place that has to satisfy his or her own mental questioning. And unless the answer is satisfactory, which he or she can derive from himself or from outside, he or she can choose to refuse the convention. And that is what has happened. If you look at medieval Europe, the whole reformation movement was the movement was of iconoclastic rejection of the ecclesiastical imposition of the church. The whole reason Buddhism surfaced in India much earlier was because some of the ossification of the ritualism 
the encrustation which happened from the deeper symbolic meaning of the Vedic philosophy had to be dismantled through epistemological anarchism. Buddhism was nothing but a movement of epistemological anarchism. And of course, the other aspect of it was stepping away from the movements of nature. But, and then, then we have, so, so the, the larger point is that the individual rational has also happened in India a bit later, and there has been a strong gap in between, which is a very important civilizational feature that again maps back to the importance of the completion of the four varnas. So just to complete the earlier story, after the individual rational is the subjective age. This is the spiritual, this is the advent of the spiritual age, provided we have true subjectivism and not false subjectivism. Not ego-based introspection, but a universal opening and widening of the consciousness to the larger realms of spirit. And the subjective age is the age that we, or at least the leading age of today's consciousness is. It is from the subjective age that we can actually move into a true spiritual age and the true spiritualization of society can happen. In the subjective age, we go back on a broader frame of an intellectual development over two millennia. We go back and reclaim the intuitive power of human consciousness, but over a much stronger, wider, and a much more secure foundation. Which is why this discussion today is extremely pertinent because man has today reached the end or has hit the law of diminishing returns as far as the mental, individual, rational age of consciousness is concerned. He is going around in circles. So this is the time to reclaim the true subjectivism and to reclaim the hidden significance of the typical, typological construction and stratification of society, symbolic of the divine dispensation for the individual and corporate existence of society in its totality. Now, what is the proof? One may ask, what is the proof that all four are required in a society? Well, what had happened? I would say, as, as he mentions in the Foundations of Indian Culture, and actually because of, because of the nature of the inner journey that the Indian spirituality took through Buddhism, which rejected nature as a domain of suffering, and through the monistic Advaita philosophy, which rejected the operations of nature as some form of illusion. There was a renunciation of the vitality of life in some sense or form, and a renunciation of Shakti. And when you renounce Shakti, Shakti renounces you. So we find that one could say that the Kshatriya, the Kshatra Tej and the Vaishya Tej took a kind of a backseat and Indian society was only on two legs of the Brahmin and the Shudra. And the hypothesis, this is the point that Ashish also made, there's a, large, there's a very strong hypothesis and a reason to suppose that a large part of the outer impoverishment of the Indian civilization and its susceptibility to attacks from outside was because of the erosion and desiccation of this vitality due to the withdrawal of Shakti. The totality of spirit, that was the vision of the Vedic symbolic and then the intellectual philosophical Vedanta and the Upanishadic age as if took a backseat 
and Indian civilization went through what it had to go through. Be that as it may, our task is a full reclamation of the power of spirit of the spiritual intention in its totality and revitalize all four aspects of the divine dispensation, both within society and within every individual. I and you need to discover and hone the faculty of knowledge as much as the faculty of the fighting spirit, as much as the faculty of reciprocity and mutuality and exchange, as much as the humility of unconditional service. And this we need to do not only within this life, but across lives. So if we take the whole rebirth principle, society through its ossification and through its rigidification has no locus standi to determine what my swabhava is. Not just the swabhava in this life, which leads to my swadharma, but the progression, the evolutionary soul progression of my swabhava across lives. In a previous life, typologically, I may have been through a warrior experience. And therefore, to complement the totality of my own self-development, I may need to go through a, a knowledge cycle in this life or in the first part of this life. You see, who can determine this? Can society have any clue about this? Not only not society, even the individual does not have a clue about it unless he or she begins to live in the inner self and reclaim the connection with the psychic being. Only when the, the whole truth and the purpose of his existence becomes clear to him. So Varna is a symbolic representation of a certain mode or a certain mix of gunas to the point that Kundan uh, mentioned. And this mix of gunas is a, is a trajectory that every individual has to take in relational harmony and equilibrium with the rest of society, with other individuals like him, so that there is a holistic, harmonious progression and a harmonious interchange between individual development and social development. This is a very complex matter. This has to be determined from the inner law of the spirit and not through any outer convention because the outer convention by its very nature is ill-equipped to even deal with this, to, to, to even understand this, let alone deal with it. The last point I'll make uh, just for one more minute, one has to look at the inner significance in the outer form. And if one looks at the, you know, the distinction between the inner significance of the four varnas and the outer form, one automatically gets a sense of interoperability and fluidity, right? If you look at the Brahmin, the outer form is what? Religious, ministration, teaching, instruction. But what is the true inner significance? Ascesis, purity, practice of spiritual truth, right? Similarly, the Kshatriya, the outer form may be government, politics, leadership. What is the inner significance? The warrior spirit, protection, chivalry, courage, isn't it? The outer form of the Vaishya might be business or mercantilism or commerce. What is the inner significance? Relational exchange, harmony, unity through mutuality, indifference. So there's a, there's a very deep spiritual truth behind this. 
Shudra may be a servant or a menial worker or a laborer. But as we said, the inner significance is self-offering. Now, it can become clear that even while being in a so-called outer form of a Kshatriya, I might be a business leader or a, or a king or a political leader, but nothing prevents me from having and invoking the inner, all four inner significances in that role. Whilst being a leader or a manager, I need to have ascesis. I need to have ascesis in terms of the dominion of soul over nature. Of course, I need to have the warrior spirit. I also need to have relational exchange and mutuality. It is not that I have to be a businessman to invoke the inner spirit of mutuality. I can do it being a Brahmin in the outer form or a Kshatriya in the outer form, even a Shudra in the outer form. So, you know, one when one tries to map the inner with the outer, one sees the complete ludicrousness of the, the rigidification, which happens when the mental level of consciousness operates where it deals only with representations rather than the inner truth of things. And, uh, and that understanding is required for us to, to be able to invoke these principles within ourselves so that we can achieve the yogic station of the Trigunatita. And uh, I think with that, I will hand over to Manan and invite any questions if there are. Thank you, Nilesh. Uh, thanks for the very important uh, enumeration of the cycles of uh, human society, which is also very fascinating uh, and uh, does make a lot of sense. Um, thanks for that. And sorry to Ashish and Nilesh. I think you probably could have shared much more. Um, I think what Nilesh mentioned about invoking all the four attributes intuitively also makes a lot of sense and uh, the only thing that i would probably like to mention at this point is that you know even in the western world there is so much academia there's so much fascination with archetypes and uh, specialization and things like that while while we have it all in our scriptures and it's been practiced seamlessly over so many millennia so why not incorporate it wholeheartedly embrace it wholeheartedly not just in education but also in society and have conversations around it right my background of having worked internationally and in India, I see that this wisdom is so applicable to say business strategy, right? To 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 working in the collective, to developing people, to developing resources, uh, to public policy, to to consulting, and so on and so forth. So, um, first of all, I think uh, I really want to extend congratulations to Rashram School for uh, this very very pertinent discussion. And uh, I'm sure that all of us are looking forward to many more of these. In terms of question, uh, first of all, I think probably it makes sense to go back to Kundan because there were some questions which were posed specifically to him. Maybe if he has gathered his thoughts, if he would like to also build upon what Nilesh and Ashish said because there were some new points. Um, maybe Kundan can take three, four minutes and then um, Ashish and Nilesh, if you really have something else to contribute, another two, two minutes maybe. And meanwhile, if uh, people can chat, uh, put the questions in the chat, and if Abhishek can help me organize some of these questions, and that would be great. So over to you, Kundun. And, and what we'll do at the end is uh, Abhishek will extend a vote of thanks. But we do have 20 minutes. So uh, without wasting more time, over to you, Kundun. Thank you. Um, I'm actually looking forward to receiving questions. 
there, there was a question which was posed around uh, the gunas being passed on through genes. If you could talk about that briefly and also ossification, but I think Nilesh touched upon it beautifully and so did Ashish. Uh, so maybe we could skip that one. But if you could talk about the gunas being transferred through genes, uh, if, uh, that would be nice. What's the heredity component of gunas? Yeah, I have, I have actually been thinking about it. You know, um, I haven't found any answer yet. You know, I'm exploring. So the the uh, the hypothesis that I have for me is, um, you know, why did they allow anulom marriages, intervarna anulom marriages, and why did they disallow, you know, um, pratilom marriages? Um, you know, did they think? I mean, if if the gene question will become um, important, then did they think that you know that uh, the guna was was being transmitted only by mail or what was, what was going on. I have not been able to find any answer yet, you know, but my, um, see, the thing is that, you know, I, I need to first understand before we figure out the truth value of the action. I have not been able to do that, but I'm pretty much sure that there was a rational. And if I keep looking at some point in time, I will discover it. So I'm in the, in the phase of finding it out, you know. Um, right. With regards to these things, the way I take, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, I bring the orientation of a researcher. So I need to find evidence in order to kind of make my points. And I have not found any points as yet. So, no problem at all. I think it's a, it's a tricky yeah. one anyhow. So we, we can let it pass. That no, is, we have think, to we have to figure it out. You know, instead of saying these people that these people were complete idiots and they did not know what they were doing, you know. Um, what was the reason? I I have I have certain speculations, but they may be politically incorrect. So I'm actually not going there. I have to figure agenda. it I have to figure yes. it out. Yes, we'll we'll get See, back with to regards it. to with regards to one point, you know, with regards to the decline. See, the point that I made was internal internal decline and external aggression. You know, so I was not saying that, you know, that the external aggression did not happen. Uh, the complete sentence was internal decline and external aggression. And the way I see it is that, you know, if, if an individual is not guna-based kshatriya, and if you send that individual to fight wars, right? I don't think you're going to win wars. And similarly, if an, if an individual is not inclined, you know, scholastically, then the person is not going to make a good Brahmin. So I personally think that, you know, I, I don't dispute that Buddhism did not contribute to the decline or that Shakti receded from India, I totally do not dispute any of those. But I'm also of this view that um, the hereditary principle uh, of the Varna system, you know, could have exposed us to lose certain wars, um, which proved instrumental. But but that will be taking a very lopsided perspective. The, the you know the fact also is that we were able to survive as a civilization uh, is also because of the Varna Jati system. You know, 
the Christians were not able to convert because in order to convert us, they, you know, uh, they had to convert a community. They had to convert a whole Jati, right? So Jati basically was one of the prominent reasons why uh, the conversion did not happen. And I'm pretty much sure that Jati must have played an integral role during the Muslim invasions also. Here is something very interesting which Shorabindo has, has written. And I think, you know, um, I would want to read that because uh, that passage actually gives a very comprehensive view of how Shorabindo looks at uh, the situation. Just give me one second, I would be able to find it out. Or in the meantime, you know, you can go to a different question and I, I will figure out that passage. Uh, okay, uh, I'm tempted to go to Ashish and uh, ask him if he wants to build something on what Nilesh shared about the five stages and also about invoking the four qualities. I think Ashish has also talked about it in some other places. So, Ashish. Uh, well, I before that, I would just, you know, want to weigh in on the question that was just getting discussed about the decline and uh, the contribution of the Jati Varna system. And I think that you know the decline is such a complex uh, subject that um, again to single out one aspect of society as the which is perhaps the essential aspect of society uh, to make it responsible for uh, for what happened uh, you know for the bad things that happened uh, while at the same time acknowledging that it was also responsible for the flourishing of arts and architecture, for the surplus being generated in manufacturing, for the towering intellectual achievements of the Hindu civilization. I think there is a contradiction right there. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that um, there is no way in which we can actually come to a conclusive understanding of why there was a decline. Yes, different things contributed. And uh, I, I am inclined to believe that uh, singling out caste is certainly not the right approach. Um, about the four stages of uh, humanity and uh, you know the, the model that Sri Aurobindo has given, that is one part of Sri Aurobindo's writing that, to be very honest, has not appealed to me. Uh, I look at Sri Aurobindo from a very individualistic standpoint in terms of my own uh, practice as a Hindu in terms of understanding my own uh, sadhana or puja, whatever. But uh, the, 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 the model that he has for humanity, I have had a look at it, but it hasn't appealed to me. So I, would, you know, I wouldn't be in a position to really comment on that. So um, I've been able to find that passage. Yeah, come um, please. So he writes, it becomes a soulless form and prolongs itself in a state of corruption, degeneracy and, oppress and oppressive formalism. When the, the users that justified are no longer in existence. Even when it ways can no longer be made consistent with the developing needs of the growth of humanity, the formal system persists and corrupts the truth of life and blocks progress. Indian society did not escape this general law. It was overtaken by these deficiencies, lost the true sense of the thing, 
which it set out to embody and degenerate into a chaos of caste, developing evils, which we are now much embarrassed to eliminate. But it was a well-devised and necessary scheme in time. It gave the community the firm and nobility built, nobly built stability it needed for the security of its cultural development. A stability hardly paralleled in any other culture. And as interpreted by the Indian genius, it became a greater thing than mere or outward economic, political, and social mechanism intended to serve the needs and convenience of the collective life. So, you know, we can, from a logical standpoint, we can engage in either or argument about it, you know, but we can have a perspective which is both and. So it is highly possible that, you know, that it was the same system which led to our decline, which also uh, eliminated our complete elimination as has happened in many different societies, you know, world, worldwide. I mean, I'm sitting, you know, on a continent where native people uh, hardly exist, you know, Latin, Latin America is completely converted, you know, there's hardly anything of African culture left in Africa. So it could be both. And I think, you know, um, at least from the Sri standpoint, they can be, they can be incorporated. They, you know, it's, we, we don't need to take uh, an either or position on this. In fact, transcendence of the binary is an integral component of the system of yoga. So this is, this is how I see it. And at the same time, Absolutely. you know, Thank you. Uh, yeah. as I said, that this is about speculation, you know, they could be, we, we just don't know at this point in time, maybe in the future, right. you know, something will emerge, we'll be able to figure it out. Yeah. Thanks, Kundan. Um, because of lack of time, I'll probably have to cut you short now. But uh, yeah, makes complete sense. And also what Ashi said, this is, um, I wanted to make two brief points here. One is around what uh, Kundan just read out, you know, uh, Sri Aurobindo very explicitly says that evolution happens spirally. So we go up, we come down, we have the sense that, okay, we have fallen back in, but the lows are higher and so are the highs. So it's like moving on from one peak to a higher peak. And that's like a journey, right? And so what Nilesh said about the two millennia, uh, at least resonates very deeply with me because in some ways now that we have exhausted our to some extent our material cravings and our uh, we've seen what's happening in the world and uh, the crisis that we are grappling with somewhat may be which way um, there is indeed a awakening which is happening especially in the younger generation um, and it is happening across the world so there is some uh, positive also in all of it uh, the other thing and uh, this is around uh, not necessarily being either or but more of an inclusive reciprocal and approach Sri Aurobindo also talks about the higher planes of consciousness when it comes to the mind right and he says that already at the level of the higher mind the contradictions kind of start to come together in harmony and then there is the human mind the intuitive mind and clearly in the symbolic age the rishis the yogis and even the general society was pretty much very intuitively consciously connected to those planes and the aspiration should really be to bring that kind of an element also in our teaching, in our education, in our society, in our conversations. Um, what, if I may say so, uh, this is not a question which has been posed, but could we could we talk about platforms like this and also say social media and also media in general and uh, what could be the role of, you know, of some kind of a consolidation of Sanatan Dharma all over the world and um, do you think, do you think that's something you would want to talk about, but if you could restrict your views only to 30 seconds, that would be great because I really do think that, uh, um, you know, maybe if Sampad Dak would kind of also speak, share his views for two, three minutes, I wouldn't want to invite him as well. 
But would you want to share about the role of social media, this hyper-globalization? Uh, and clearly, uh, battle lines are drawn on multiple sides uh, without elaborating on it. I think we all know what we're talking about. So, um, Nilesh, could I pass it on to you first? Yeah, actually, uh, before that question, there is an important thing that uh, he has written in the Foundations of Indian Culture. As we are, those of us who have read that book, we, we know that the last section of that book, he talks about the polity, right? I mean, he, after covering a sculpture, architecture, he talks about polity. And there is a clear indication in his writing of the role of the Jati Dharma or the Jati Sangha in the governance of society. So it is clearly yeah. they has played a role in the in the whole movements of nature. And I quote, as with the Kula, I mean, he first, before this, he gives different reasons of why the Jatis became emerged as subdivisions of each of the Varnas, right? And there were different reasons for each of the four Varnas. But eventually says, as with the Kula, each caste has its own caste law and the rule of living and conduct called Jati Dharma and its caste communal assembly called Jati Sangha. As the Indian polity in all its institutions was founded on a communal and not on an individualistic basis, the caste also counted in the political and administrative functioning of the kingdom. So there is a clear role. I mean, it is nature does not do anything which is completely pointless or useless. And he, you know, I think Ashish mentioned the guild system, the whole guild framework of a of an association of merchants and traders to protect their own interests. These sorts of formations emerged from, from some kind of stratification. So it is not without any utility that a large part of the social and administrative resilience at the grassroots level of the Indian uh, civilization was, uh, was possible through this structure. Uh, to your question, Manan, uh, yes, it is a million dollar question and it has to be done. And uh, uh, because the age of the internet brings about a level of connectivity which, which supersedes and kind of transcends the limitation of physical proximity and distance, the very fact that we are having this conversation now and are able to do so in this, with this level of uh, functionality <clears throat> indicates that there's a role of internet to be played, not just in nature in the way it is being used today, but in a, at a deeper level of connectivity. And, uh, you know, and Sampad and I have shared some and discussed something and maybe that there is a forum in which we can discuss it. The answer is a big resounding yes. It can be done and it will be done. Yeah, I'll just quickly share my thoughts about this. Uh, I think, yes, of course, it is important. It is perhaps uh, uh, necessary for Sanatan Dharma to... Uh, you know, to be spread all over the world. And in his Uttarpara speech, Sri Aurobindo made that absolutely clear that what is known as nationalism is Sanatan Dharma and Sanatan Dharma is nationalism. So his uh, endorsement and his uh, belief in Hindu nationalism was essentially the spread of Sanatan Dharma uh, outside India. However, the problem that we are facing uh, 100 years or more after the Uttarpara speech is that Sanatan Dharma is on shaky foundation within India itself. And unless that is fixed, uh, the ambition of it going outside and, you know, uh, healing the rest of the world is slightly out of place, in my opinion. Right. Uh, short on time. There are some questions. Uh, apologies. Probably we can answer them later. Uh, maybe Abhishek can help out. Uh, can I request Sampadda to share his views, please? So uh, thank you, Kundan, Ashish, and Nilesh for uh, 
you know elaborating on certain aspects and uh, one uh, thing which i wanted to uh, mention here and as a as a response to uh, what ashish said that uh, there are not much material with regard to this in sri aurobindo so uh, sri aurobindo speaks of the spiritualized society and uh, he talks in terms of the inner significance of these four powers what nilesh mentioned and there is a specific writing by sri aurobindo called sapta chatushtay so in that he speaks of the inner significances of these four shaktis four tejas brahma tejas kshatra uh, tejas vaishya shakti and shudra shakti and uh, his book the mother you know like in the beginning what i mentioned the maheshwari mahakali mahalakshmi mahasaraswati and all these will be applicable when we contemplate more on the vision of sri aurobindo a vision of that spiritualized society the formation of the spiritualized society and uh, much of the issues connected with the present caste system and then linking it with the original idea of varna and the jati will have a greater solution when we contemplate on the general significances so uh, and and in synthesis of yoga also and under chaturvarnya in the essays on the gita there is much insight that he has brought to this whole idea of varna and jati so maybe in some later session we can have elaborate discussion on these inner significances and then how to map it to the present uh, uh, issues connected with varna and jati so that's what i wanted to uh, mention and then thank you all again and then i uh, manan you can take it forward to what next right um, so five minutes to go uh, immense gratitude to all the participants and uh, please do subscribe and uh, continue to join us in such uh, discussions and also um, participate actively thanks to kundan for joining us from the us and also to nilesh nashish and uh, to rashtram and i think i should uh, hand it over to abhishek now to extend a word of thanks and wind up for the day and also if you have any announcements to make about the youtube channel or um, you know the website or something please do that now thanks abhishek thanks everyone namaste namaste bye bye uh, just a second uh, sir if you would stay oh sorry. yeah i just extend sorry abhishek sorry sorry by that yeah. uh, so thank you manan for um, this wonderful moderation and uh, thank you ashish sir i think we have connected virtually but this is the, our social media but this is the first time we are meeting face to face over webinar and uh, thank you for so wonderfully putting the social economical and spiritual aspects of the jati and thank you nilesh ji for uh, so subtly putting the different stages of psychological development that sri aurobindo has uh, elaborated so nicely thank you dr kundan singh ji for uh, touching upon many parts of varna jati and how the western academia and the modernity uh, is attacking us since few centuries the purpose of this webinar has been the defense of indian culture and we at rashtram are running a one year 
course on Sri Aurobindo coinciding with the 150th birth anniversary and currently the module that is running and only one lecture has been completed is the foundations of Indian culture. I would request all the uh, members who are in the webinar to please go to rashtram.org and check out the course and do subscribe if you like for the fourth module, the foundations of Indian culture. Thank you again, Mananji, for taking out your time and thanks others for so wonderfully moderating the first session. And at last, I thank Sampad sir for this wonderful idea and for this wonderful and bringing so many erudite scholars in one platform. Uh, we can, uh, we will meet again in Bajarki too with a new topic, contextualizing Sri Aurobindo in a new topic. Namaste to everyone. Uh, probably we can have a minute of silence and then wind up. Yeah, yeah. we will have a minute of silence and then we can wind up.